Two kings won a war. One prophet says maybe not. Up ahead on the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello, Niebuhr Nation, and welcome back to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, the only podcast devoted entirely to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. We're continuing this week with our series on Niebuhr's uber-insightful book, Beyond Tragedy. It's the first book where he puts kind of everything together, and he does so by way of a unique genre called the sermonic essay. Now, as clergymen ourselves, we would highly recommend this book for anybody out there looking for inspiration in these politically charged times. It has all the warnings and clarity one could ask for in confronting many of the Christian nationalist idolatries that we see today. And hopefully what we offer you here will serve as but a sampler of a much deeper experience waiting for you as you go on to open its pages. And we hope that you use these discussions also as a companion as you're going through these books that we're covering, or maybe just a nice refresher uh, long after you finished. So now, without further ado, the title of this chapter is 400 to 1, 400 to 1. And now I'm going to turn it over to my friend, Mr. Aaron Duncan, to kick us off by reading the scripture Niebuhr chose for this third chapter. Okay, so this comes out of 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 2 through 28. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth and Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not he were a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but whom we may inquire, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat on his throne, having put on their robes and a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, made him horns and iron. And he said, "This with these shalt push the Syrians. Um, until thou have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver into the king's hand. 
And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spoke unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the Lord declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that I will speak. So he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered them, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all of Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, did I not tell thee that he would not prophesy no concerning no good concerning me but evil? And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And he and one said on this manner, and another said on that manner, and there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail, uh, prevail also. Go forth and do so. And the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city. And to Joaz, the king's son, and say, thus saith the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with the water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if thou return at all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken to me. Ooh, you know, maybe we should run with the NRSV from now on. <laughs> I'm probably going to So this not- is... I, yeah. This is whatever translation Niebuhr's using. I guess we could probably presume this is King James Version. I um, think it is. I think I'll almost pronounce uh, Zedekiah's father's name as Ch- 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 Chia, like the growing things you put in water. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I mean, nobody would have noticed because I don't, I'm sorry. You read the King James, you kind of tune out. It's hard to catch all that. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 make a note to read it NRSV from now well, on. Maybe we'll do NRSV or NASB from now on, ESV. Or, or any other or ESV. I don't I don't really care. Just something a little bit more smoother. So, by the way, I messed up earlier. I said this is the third chapter. This is the fourth chapter. Okay, and it's called Four Hundred to One. Thank you, Aaron, for reading that. Now, before we get into the story. Before we get into this chapter, we should say that Niebuhr kind of set this up uh, to be kind of three sections and an introduction. So there's kind of a little introduction that I'm just calling the rub. It's where he kind of speaks plainly about kind of the main meaning of the text or kind of where a collision is going to happen. Maybe a dialectic is going to happen. And then he's going to go into three parts. And the first part is the story. So he's just going to run through the story itself and kind of in, in Niebuhr's own words. The second part of this is going to be kind of, I, I kind of labeled it as self-deception and hypocrisy. And the third part of this is going to be how to spot a true prophet. How to, how to know when you see a true prophet. 
uh, and kind of the importance of prof, uh, of, of the prophet as well. Um, so let's start, let's get into the rub. So here at the beginning, Niebuhr's talking about like magic and religion. What, what did you guys take from this? What does this mean? Sort of a crude science. That's what he's getting at. Like to say that he basically saying magic is like a crude science. It's like, you're trying to bend the, the, the cosmic forces to the human will. So it's mm -hmm. like, that's the idea that is behind it. Yeah. Um, good. And Niebuhr is an anthropologist, so he's going to start off with anthropology in this way, like looking at things not in a biblical way, but in a way that kind of humanity developed. And he's going to say yeah. that magic came first and then religion. And magic is just kind of this crude science of trying to bend nature and cosmic forces uh, to the human will. But then we graduate to religion. And does that part of it really go away? No, I Part of Niebuhr's argument here is that there are these competing motivations that stem from magic all the way into religion. So that sort of attempt to make nature conform to your will, to what you want and the outcomes you want, happens in religion. Um, we might go back to the previous chapter about the Ark as well. The Ark kind of has that sort of function as a symbol of power and self-justification hmm. um but Niebuhr links this sort of motivation to king ahab's use of religion he's later in this i think in the third section Niebuhr goes on to say that um king ahab has a very crude understanding of religion as hmm. like a utilitarian form as it just serves a utility for him to get from one point a to point b it's just like seeking uh, divine justification for his actions. Yeah, um, exactly. So good. So so Aaron is right to point out that kind of the residual, uh, kind of what's 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 left over from what was magic, you can still see it in religion, where we're trying to use religion to kind of bend the gods and the cosmic and the divine to our own will. Um, and the way that Niebuhr puts it is uh, that like magic, Niebuhr says, religion remains an effort to glorify and assure the success of the cause closest to the de devotee's heart. Mm -hmm. So religion is, it seems to be a graduated form. Uh, it's, it's a higher form of magic, yeah. but it still maintains that part of magic that it's still trying to bend uh, the cosmos to your own will. But there's also the second part of it, of religion um, that is different from magic. And that is, Niebuhr says, there is in even the most primitive religion, a suggestion of a higher purpose. So religion tends to still point beyond itself. So even as you're trying to like form, like make religion form uh, the God's will into your own will type of thing, there's still this hint within religion that perhaps God's will is different from your own. And maybe to, to run off of Aaron's, uh, I love that you pointed to the last chapter, Aaron, about, the, about the, the ark and the temple. So the ark kind of represents kind of the magic, kind of the, this, this is the God's justifying my will. But the temple is maybe this reminder that God stands beyond, that God is beyond our own will, that God ha has a higher purpose than just war mm. and our own specific interests. Good. So let's keep that in mind, these two parts of religion, bending the, world, bending the gods to our will and bending our will to the gods, um, that kind of internal dialectic and, and religion itself. 
part one is he gets into the story. So we have Ahab, who's the king of Israel, goes to the king of Judah and wants to join forces in order to destroy uh, Ramoth Gilead. Um, the king of Judah's like, wait, 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 let's make sure we're going to succeed. Let's make sure this is in God's will. So the king of Judah is kind of on that latter part of religion and and knows that there's a divine purpose beyond himself and he wants to make sure that that divine purpose is in line with going to war so the king of judah is like you know uh let's make sure that this is in god's will so ahab is like okay cool i can do that i got 400 prophets he summons them they all say the same thing they're like oh you'll be so successful they're like the ultimate yes men you know ultimately this war is god's will and weirdly enough, now King Ahab isn't liking this one bit. These are his own prophets, and he's not liking this because they're all saying the same thing. So there's kind of a hint there of an uneasy conscience in Ahab where he's like, I don't like that they're all saying the same thing. That looks really bad. You know, that looks like they're all just trying to appease me. And the king of Judah isn't liking this one bit because Niebuhr says, quote, he probably suspected the man who paid the piper had called the tune. In other words, he probably, you know, the king of Judah thought that Ahab is telling the prophets to say this. So Ahab is kind of suspicious of seeking out that higher power. And the king of Judah is suspicious of Ahab's tinkering with this, of manipulating his prophets. So, and we're going to find out later on, this, this is kind of representing the two sides of religion. One is suspicious of bending God's will to ours, and the other is suspicious of bending our will to God's. So uh, the king of Judah then requests a more, quote, authentic prophet. And Ahab's like, yeah, I got one of those too. But then Ahab's like, but I hate this guy. I hate this guy so much. He never prophesies anything good about me. Let's, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe we should go get him. So Ahab summons Jehoshaphat to bring in Micaiah. Micaiah is that prophet that supposedly hates Ahab. And now this is the way that Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat is kind of like a messenger. And this is the way Jehoshaphat puts it to Micaiah. He says, quote, if it's, if it's not inconsistent with your general principles, we hope you will maintain the unanimity of the verdict. <laughs> okay, so let's break that. Let's break that down. Let me say that again. And uh, let me hear what you guys have to say about this. So Jehoshaphat goes to Micaiah and he knows, Jehoshaphat knows that Micaiah is the black sheep of the prophets. And he's like, if it's not inconsistent with your general principles, we hope you will maintain, you know, this unanimous verdict. What's he saying here? Like, I, I think in this section is when Eber says that this sort of like courier, this messenger, was the most diplomatic messenger um, instead of like King Ahab. But he's basically saying like, yeah, we've already kind of reached this conclusion about we want to go to war. So if you can just give us like, um, you know, your blessing, you go do this, it'd be great. He wants him to validate it. Yeah, he wants him to basically put a stamp yeah. of approval because he's, he's uh, un like you said, he's self-conscious about whether or not that it's in alignment with the divine will. And maybe he knows it's not in alignment with the divine will. You know, there's almost a hint of that, that he knows, like, right, the hammer's going to drop the true, he knows who the true prophet is. Yeah, um, that's true. And, and he doesn't, he doesn't really, like, want to see 
his like the other guys serve a different purpose. They serve the purpose of like validating his claims. Whereas yeah. this guy's like with the guy that like he's like the critical grandfather that you go that you go to ask about, you know, you go to your you're gonna take your first loan out on your car and you go to be like, Grandpa, what do you think about this? And he's like, It's a terrible idea. <laughs> and you know He'll tell you the gonna, truth. Yeah, yeah. You know he's gonna tell you the truth. You know, this this language that Jehoshaphat uses, I couldn't help but think, I couldn't help but be reminded of what Trump said to Comey. You know, in that private meeting that Trump had with Comey, when Comey was investigating Flynn, uh, General Flynn, and and I had to look up the quote because it's so similar. Uh, Trump said to Comey, quote, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. And what's happening here is similar to what's happening with Jehoshaphat. So Trump wants the authority that Comey's integrity conveys, but not the integrity itself, you know? So that's basically what's going on here. So a, like Jehoshaphat wants the integrity, like the, the, the reputation for integrity uh, that, that Micaiah has, but without the integrity itself. He doesn't want him to actually tell the truth. He wants him to go along with everybody but he wants him, you know, to at well, least act like he's still, you know, authentic. Well, the perfect irony of the story is that, like, I mean, doesn't he, I mean, he he does tell him what he wants to hear, right? Yeah, and we'll get to that here in a second. Get, and say. I love that play, because I don't know if Micaiah is, like, reading game theory books or something like that. But, but it is kind of the perfect way to expose both kings a little bit, uh, what he ultimately go, uh, does at the end of this. But, but that's kind of what Jehoshaphat is doing here with Micaiah, kind of leaning on him and wants to, you know, he, he, he knows that he needs a, a quote unquote air, you know, quote unquote authentic uh, prophet, but he wants this authentic prophet to say what everybody said, you know. So, uh, and then what's Micaiah's response? Quote, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he's, he's basically saying, screw you, dude. I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to speak the truth, not whatever I want, but I'm going to speak the truth here. And then Niebuhr compares this whole situation of kind of the divine or the kind of the, um, the, the, the king. Um, I almost said divine king, but it's kind of that idea, kind of this king that's above everybody. And you have all this, these yes men surrounding him. Uh, and then you have kind of the one voice of dissent. Niebuhr compares this to, to King Henry VIII and Thomas More, which I thought is, is a really interesting uh, situation. If you don't know anything about it to our listeners, it's basically that Thomas More was not on board with this secular king being in charge of the church. Uh, being a good Catholic that Thomas More was, he was going to be dissenting to this whole thing. And it ultimately costed him his life. So I don't know. Uh, did, you, did anybody take anything from that kind of comparison? I mean, I think it's genius. I think it's, it's I mean, he's talking about the, the this, he's, he's really painting it as a, and this is one of the things I love Niebuhr does. He's always trying to attach it to a present moment, but not necessarily like the present, like today moment, but a historical moment. Yeah. You know that this is like a ongoing phenomenon. This is like something we, we, we see this scripture, not only back then, but this is, this type of thing echoes throughout history. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of like, this is the fate of humanity. This is the tragedy of humanities. We will live with these kind of tragic moments just as we have in the past. 
but it's almost like you have to acknowledge them. That's like the first thing for neighbors. He wants you to acknowledge, for instance, in this case, right, the how the, the, the tragedy of the true prophet in society and how that's been a perpetual struggle, right? Trying to separate these two, but also recognizing that they both exist. I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating thing that he does. Yeah. I think it's quite, um, if you can like boil down Niebuhr to one passage in the Old Testament, it probably would be Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is just kind of a repetition of what's come before. It's yeah, that's right. Book. It's very similar to Augustine's um, contribution to Western civilization. And that is the idea of historical recurrence that we see kind of the, the same recipe gets perpetuated throughout history. So long as you're dealing with human beings, they're gonna keep making the same mistakes. We're not progressing, we're not regressing. We are in a, in a, you know, a nightmare of a loop in history uh, where even the best historians can get kind of sucked in to the, the dramas of their history. Uh, the dramas of their time and not see things that are coming completely. Yeah, good. So now this is um, this is an important point now that Zach was Zach brought up a second ago. I didn't pick this up when I when when I read the passage itself earlier, but when Micaiah is finally put in front of the two kings, he tells them what they want to hear. He tells Ahab what he wants to hear. And Ahab is so shocked by this. He's basically like, you're just like all the others. I told you I wanted someone authentic in here, blah, 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 blah. But then Micaiah's like, ha, you see, you knew the truth all along. Um, kind of played off of him that way. That, you know, and in Niebuhr's words, he says, talking to Ahab, you have proposed a certain action and wanted to use the prophets merely to reinforce your own will. Yet you have an uneasy conscience and it is not reassured by lying prophets who have so frequently agreed with you before. Micaiah is doing something genius here and that, you know, he tells Jehoshaphat, oh, I'm going to tell the truth. And he gets that in there knowing what the kings want to hear. And he lies to them, kind of calls their bluff and says, this the, you're going to go and you're going to prosper you're going to do you're going to the king is going to come away with this victory type of thing and then ahab's like that can't be right you know i no. wanted i wanted truth and it kind of exposes kind of yeah the uneasiness that ahab had going into this whole thing yeah he's like that's not that's not how it's supposed to go man you're supposed to tell me i'm wrong and then i'm supposed to kill you and in prison yeah and that's and that's the irony of it is that so he basically micaiah lies uh to tell them what they want to hear knowing so this is this is really complicated to explain but he lies to them telling them what they want to hear knowing that ahab wants to hear something different knowing that ahab knows deep down that his prophets his 400 prophets are full of crap so he's calling his bluff you know these 400 prophets are full of crap and you're are, you're telling me that right now because you are calling out my lie so then Ironically, Ahab then throws Micaiah in prison. So not a happy ending whatsoever. What do you guys make of this kind of complicated, it's almost Shakespearean because you have so many uh, motivations that are clashing and then somebody does something, you know, out of the ordinary to kind of expose the motivations of somebody else. I don't know, it's, it's a fascinating read when you look at it in this way. 
Oh yeah. Well, what do you mean when you ask like which aspect you hoping we're going to speak to? Um, well, I don't know what. What do you guys think of like? Uh, well, I, what does yeah. this expose? What does this move by Micaiah expose? I mean, it exposes kind of the per. I mean, in two parts. It exposes the true purpose of most prophets, right, or most priests in this setting. But it also exposes the king's own knowledge of like that purpose. You know what I mean? And there's a certain sense of like it's like a known corruption. You know what I mean? It's like a it's like a hey, like these guys serve the purpose. They're supposed to be the pure. They're supposed to keep the word of the Lord pure. But what they truly, the purpose they truly serve is just validating the divine, uh, the, the claims of divine kingship, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what it exposes. I want to explain my thought here, but I want you to help me out with this too. Okay. Expound. So later in this section, Niebuhr goes on to suggest that a king may just be a symbol or the centerpiece of our of a society's highest values right mm. he is the face of what the society wants and believes right mm -hmm. in to put it in contemporary language a lot of critiques of the u.s government under trump right we would just say that trump is a symptom of the kind of current in American politics, right? Mm -hmm. So using Niebuhr's sort of analogy here, you could say like, well, Ahab is just the outgrowth, the logical outgrowth of what the health of Israel is at that point. So Ahab being this, the deeper, I think, point that Niebuhr makes, is going to make in here is that, you know, the, the real issue isn't just, uh, Micaiah Ahab it's Micaiah versus society mm -hmm. it's this person who is aware of this will beyond his own and then there's this other person who's sort of aware of that there's something above him but he still just wants to answer to his own sort of like you know ambitions uh dreams and wishes of glory and these sorts of things, these vain things, put your hope and faith in. So that's when he gets into this big, big whole debate about what is the relationship between church and state? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we, maybe we should change uh, we, we the about state it. discussion for in a second, but I think you're right on. I think that what he exposes here is kind of going back to the Jehoshaphat thing. Jehoshaphat didn't just want a yes man. He want, he he goes to him as a messenger to get him because he is authentic. Mm -hmm. But he wants both to have his way and to be authentic. So it's it's kind of like people will he talks about this in the next section. People will try to use science, bend science to their will because science is authentic, because it is indifferent, you know that because science is indifferent it ha it is able to uh to have a more firm truth so the the powerful in society want the validity of science but not necessarily in the integrity of science which actually is the thing that gives it validity so it, it wants to rob that kind of authority 
but doesn't but doesn't want it to stay that way. I, I okay. Basically, what I'm saying here is that the king wants it both ways. King Ahab, yes. King Ahab wants it both ways. He wants validation from the gods, but he wants it to be true, and he can't have both in this situation. And when when uh, when Micaiah tries to call his bluff and he gives him the validation, he knows deep down it's still not true. You know that he can't have he can't have it both ways in this. And he says that in the next chapter, maybe we should go there now. That there's this tug of war with religion. Oh, next chapter, next section. Yeah, he, he we have this tug of war with in American culture with religion, with philosophy, and with science. And these things are supposed to be indifferent. And they're supposed to be kind of standing above the powers to a degree and can't be coerced. But people will still try to coerce them, but still somehow want them to remain true, you know, because their authority is dependent upon it. I don't know if I'm making sense. Well, I just wanted to kind of go back to your point when you brought up Jehoshaphat. Um, that point you made because Niebuhr is quick to say in that section I believe it's a section that it is so much easier to point out the hypocrisy of your neighbor than it is to, mm. to know your own hypocrisy and so one of the reasons why Jehoshaphat goes ahead and requests uh, Micaiah to come along from Ahab Niebuhr claims as a possibility is, you know, Jehoshaphat's not buying all this bull that Ahab's putting up with 400 prophets and priests. Mm-hmm. But Niebuhr says that, hey, you know, that Jehoshaphat may have just done that because he didn't have his own prophets there. Yeah. So Jehoshaphat kind of resembles the other side where he's not aware of his own hypocrisy at this point. Mm-hmm. He seems like he's being objective. And I think this is probably where we come into this next bit with philosophy, science, arts, politics, yeah, where, cool. you know, we, we have this veneer of objectivity, of passionlessness, mm-hmm. where we can sit on the sideline like Jehoshaphat and say, hey, Ahab, you know, like, I get your point here, but it seems like you have a lot riding um, on on this, a lot going for you. We go ahead and do this war. So how about we get something objective here and you know play this out? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, imagine a second administration of Trump. In the first administration, Trump had people in his administration, people surrounding him, who had integrity, um, who were who could kind of contain him a little bit Mm -hmm. over time all those people either left got fired went to prison or maybe not prison for those people but a, a lot of those people ended up leaving so at this point trump is only surrounding himself with yes men if he gets another administration he's not going to have the mike pence there to kind of be someone who has, it's hard to say that Mike Pence has integrity at this point, by the way, but still somebody who had a modicum of, of integrity, who, you know, when pushed, you know, at 
you know, given the right moment, he will do the right thing if everything else is on the line and, you know, that type of thing. At the very last moment, yes, he'll step in and do something. But in the next administration, Trump's not going to have any of those people. But he's also going to have an authenticity problem because who in his administration can you believe anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody going to be standing up and, uh, and calling a spade a spade, you know, in, in, in difficult times. Trump is going to suffer because of that. I, th- I think that what this is saying is, I, I think that we can c- conclude that, that if you surround yourself with just the 400 profits, you are going to lack validation then in the public eye. You know, oh. not many people are going to be able to believe you. But you, so, but the whole process of getting there for Trump has been this process of trying to lean on the Comey's because Comey means something. Like the integrity of a Comey means something in society. If he can get him on his side, then, you know, it's all roses. But the thing is, is Comey has to sacrifice the very thing that he is in order for him to get it. So at the very end of the day, you know, even the people who at one time had integrity and authenticity, uh, that's all gone now. And so the very things that were giving Trump power to begin with are no longer there. Well, I guess one of the things that one of the fundamental problems or one of the not problems, but dilemmas of this chapter for me is I love how Niebuhr frames the prophet and how they speak through, you know, they speak the word when no one else will, right? And they, because they have an insight into something about the consciousness of the king, but also what the, you know, what that higher good is. Yeah. The problem is that this is precisely, so like I, I need to be able to distinguish what is the difference between a true prophet and somebody like, you know, some of the prophets that, for instance, we just use Trump as an example. He tended to surround himself with people who would prophesy literally over him that, you know, that he was the only one in the only way, but they saw themselves as the 400 to one. They saw themselves as the one they they saw that they were being courageous and saying what needed to be said, and maybe not, but that, you know, they, they take on this same bravado or same like courage, you know, and they they would frame it that way. You know, even, even some of the politicians, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she would see herself as this kind of like voice in the darkness, you know, the reality (laughs) is she's not, but that's such a good point is that no, they, like they are craving authenticity as much as they are craving like they, they want to be seen as authentic yeah and let's go we could even keep going down to the you know the the theo bros you know the mm. the guys the, the you know i'm i've run in a lot of calvinist circles and you know there's a lot of true prophets there you know a lot of people who yeah. think they're that 400 to one but they're just bullies you know they're, they're not actually they don't actually speak anything with insight you know and so it also, just we could get into, you know, the, the average everyday congregant, you know, it's like what we were just talking about with, you know, uh, all this stuff going down with Trump, not to get too sucked into that, but talking to people and they're, they're telling you, oh, no, you know, like he, he this is all a conspiracy to take him down. And they, they think that they occupy this place of the 400 to one. They're, they're this, this remnant of, you know, people that still see the truth. And even, you know, we could go theologically, like, you know. Uh, not just the Theobros, but the, the, you know, you can get into another circle that I spent a lot of time with was the dispensational camp, right? If you don't, if you don't believe the rapture is coming, if you don't believe, you know, that the, I mean, I I get on a list of theological topics, but a lot of people place themselves with this. I I, I guess maybe the thing that distinguishes it for me is sacrifice, right? Like, and not just sacrifice your life because you might just be an idiot and end up dead anyways. But, but really yeah. sticking your your face out there. 
Yeah, that's the only uh, thing that And gets... we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. Uh, we, it's funny. We, we all keep on hopping ahead to the next section, no matter yeah. what section we're on. Uh, but uh, but I, think, I think that's a good point, Zach, because I, I think what Niebuhr is bringing out here, which I didn't catch the first time. The first time that I read this, I just saw this as this is just this really courageous prophet that's out there. Um, and sometimes he just needs to buck the system. But this time in reading it, he, Niebuhr really exposes the desires of the kings and the complexity of that desire, that it's not enough in human ambition. It's not enough that we gain power. We want to authenticate it. We want to make it real. And, and this, this might be kind of that, uh, the reason why a lot of us will kind of have um, imposter syndrome, you know, that maybe we'll get the PhD. Maybe we'll get we'll get the uh, the senior pastor position. Maybe we'll get these things and attain this, but then we'll kind of feel like a fraud. Um, we almost need that higher purpose validation or imagine it or something like that. We want, we crave authenticity more, like probably more than power, but we want the power too. We want both the power and the authenticity that gives us that power. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not enough to just have power. We need to be we need to be told. Oh, it's it's from God, you know. Yeah, like that. But on, on, I guess to, to kind of to differentiate between th those people, like kind of like I think all, us three kind of fit in that sort of imposter syndrome sort of area. But like to kind of go off what Zach said previously, there's a difference in these theobros and these people who prophesy over Trump when they feel attacked, I don't know if this would be a level of pride that re that is like as a result from these things, but maybe a level of abjection. There's a sort of sadness that they feel confronted and diminished and- um, Victimized. Just, yeah, dislocated from the rest of the country ever. And so from that comes this abjection, this sort of self-pity in these things. And that kind of offsprings this sort of conflict in their person and with other people, the neighbors and whatnot. Does that make sense how I'm connecting that? Yeah, but somehow they're still funneled into and comprise a whole that yeah. somehow ends up becoming the 400. So they're all kind of victimized and they're all kind of uh, feel dejected and, and sad and pitied and stuff like that because, you know, um, we're you know we're being attacked by the fbi or or whatever you know however the the yeah. they, they seem to be they're, they're always on a cross but at some point yeah. they because of that this kind of will to survive mentality and kind of uh victimization somehow transmutes into a collective that yeah. now we are all you know speaking from a position of power but they still see themselves somehow as victims it's crazy yeah from a big scale, from a larger scale, yeah. I mean, I don't think King Ahab potentially sees himself no. as a victim. But you know what he does think is that the land in Gilead is rightfully theirs, right? So That's like that can shoot out from that sort of, I guess, position of victim mentality of some sort of like, That's rightfully ours. We deserve this sort of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's get into the self-deception thing, because this is, and we've already kind of been talking about this, 
But Niebuhr kind of draws out how both kings wanted something different from religion, kind of both re represent different sides. Ahab wanted divine justification for his actions, uh, kind of just using God as a prop to, you know, to give him what he wants and the way that he used the prophets. Uh, the king of Judah, Niebuhr seems to be suggesting, wants truth. You know, he, he wants to know, you know, he wants to know what that divine purpose actually is. Brilliantly, neither one of them got what they wanted. Ahab did not get the justification because he knows deep down that Micaiah is telling a fib. He knows deep down that Micaiah is lying. Uh, King Judah didn't get the truth because Micaiah lied. You know, I think it's interesting how Micaiah treated that situation so that neither one really got what they wanted. But then Niebuhr turns to kind of modern applications. Niebuhr says that there are certain hard places in society. He calls them cultural forces. There are certain hard places in society that shall never bend, even though we try to bend them. But these places shall never bend. Niebuhr claims these as science, religion, and philosophy. And he says, and I quote, no cultural force, whether science, religion, or philosophy, can ever be the prostitute of a particular cause. Let me say that again. No cultural force, whether science, religion, or philosophy, can ever be the prostitute of a particular cause. A prophet who speaks only what the king wants to hear ceases ere long to be of use even to the king. So this is kind of getting to the point that I was talking about earlier, where you rob this person of their authenticity, even for your own particular interests. You rob them of their uh, authenticity. They cease to become even useful to a king because they, they no longer have authenticity. It's a very difficult thing to explain, but basically he wants to take from Micaiah this affirmation, but he wants it to be authentic too. But Micaiah can't be authentic and still give it to him. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so this is the rub. This is the difficult place. But what Micaiah exposes here, that he's useless so long as he lies, you know, Tell, so long as he tells the king what he wants to hear. The king knows that something's missing now. He no longer has authenticity uh, for his case. Even if Micaiah spoke up and said something different and he told the truth, even if he told the truth in this situation, then Ahab could be like, well, at least we got the other side. And he could somehow feel validated that, oh, it's a mixed bag and uh, I'm the king. I, you know, I don't know, like uh, I, it, this has to be in, uh, I, I have to have divine favor this king is still craving kind of mixed reviews at least in order to validate what he wants to do. Um, but so long as it's all lopsided and everybody's telling the truth, it's obvious, you know, that, that he has no validation here. I think, you know, well, Niebuhr does write in this vein of like, you, what, what usefulness is um, Micaiah. And they said the prophet who speaks only what the king wants to hear ceases there long to be of, use even to the king, this is a fact which the Marxian theory of ideology does not always comprehend. So like, if you think about like after Wuhan, right? The, the virus and China is lying through their teeth and using fuzzy science, using really bad science to, to, to say what they want to say through it. At that point, is science even any use when nobody even trusts their science? It's of no use anymore. Does that make sense? 
or the religion that's constantly propping up whoever the Republican Party leader is, whoever the, the president is, is that religion of any use anymore? Because obviously it's not authentic. But initially, the the head of the GOP wants religion because it seems indifferent and because it seems authentic. Uh, but after a while, you start to see this has no authenticity anymore. It's just promoting whatever whoever's in charge. And I think that he uses the I think he uses um, philosophy with communism and how um, Marxism was constantly kind of just using philosophy in its own favor. Um, and it kind of becomes unfalsifiable at that point. And, you know, anything that's not Marxist philosophy is obviously bad or wrong or something yeah. like that. And so no, that philosophy, any use anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that, that that descent into meaninglessness, you know, is a really key part to understanding what a lot of people find distasteful about. At least I find distasteful, but I think I'm not the only one. But you can't really put your finger on it, right? The, 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 the pastor who comes and is just like promoting, you know, that he comes along the side that the president is just like, you know, a diehard promoting kind of their causes. And, you know, it, it almost for anybody that wants to be a prophet or who occupies that space, it, it definitely involves a bit of space between you and them, yeah, um, yeah. a little bit of space between you and them socially. And I think that's a really important thing to think is that you can't just, I don't know, you can be a critic and be a friend, but you can't, you can't occupy the place of prophecy without, putting yeah. some like, true distance. It's, uh, I heard, I think, I think it was Martin Luther King. I heard one time and they said that he purposely avoided presidents or being with presidents for that, basically for that reason, um, because it's so easy to get kind of wooed by their, you know, and also just become a part of their cause. Cause that's what they want you for, you know? And, and that's one of the things you almost feel sick about when you hear, you know, uh, presidents endorsing, I mean, a pastor's endorsing presidents and like coming to the Oval Office and everything. It's like you lose a voice in the culture or you, you just lose a voice that's like saying, hey, this, you know, I'm not just getting waltz in here. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not just you gonna... lose authenticity. And yeah. actually Niebuhr, I, one of Niebuhr's articles that I kept on thinking about uh, as I was reading through this, uh, he wrote 20 some years later when Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, and it is that one that Sabella recommended to us, uh, King's uh, Chapel and the King's Courtiers. Uh, and it's basically about, um, he, Niebuhr differentiates Billy Graham from, uh, from Martin Luther King and basically says that Billy Graham is in there in the East Wing, you know, chumming it up with Nixon while King is out there getting shot. And he draws this distinction between the prophet who is buddying up with power and constantly kind of prostituting their authenticity, like prostituting their power to the point that it's meaningless. You know, and, but, but then you have King who's kind of on the outside, you know, bucking the system. Yeah. Uh, I think also people could be, I think one of the things that maybe this doesn't highlight as well is that those people are not always so aware of that. Like they're I agree. Not until until it, it bites them real hard sometimes they they can be very they can be like oh like this is how we do it this is how we get stuff done like yay we're on you know i think of like billy graham actually after nixon went down and you know you read about what he says about how he you know he was basically never as close to any president after that again like he was because he realized you know he basically got consumed into this guy's cause without any you know interesting that's amazing to hear that because I oh, tell yeah. you what, like Billy Graham, say what you want. Like 
like he was kind of indifferent to whichever president was in power, you know, like up until that point, I guess, like he, he wasn't he, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, no, I think uh, he says that. I think that the Nixon thing was one of his greater regrets. I think his greatest regrets is that he uh, didn't spend enough time with his kids, but the other one I think has to do with, you know, well, he was caught on a hot mic. <laughs> Billy Graham was uh, spouting anti-Semitic stuff with Nixon. So uh, I don't know if he was spouting it or he, if, if he was just kind of going along with it. But it was kind of a dark, dark uh, chapter in Billy Graham's life. But so anyway, so it's an interesting uh, connection there that he's going to pick back up on this theme of the prophet, the prophet and the uh in the East wing versus the, the prophet out on the streets, you know, um, opposing uh, power. And, you know, it might be unfair to treat it as binary like that. And I don't think Niebuhr was necessarily trying to do that, but it, 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 it's important to draw distinctions between those types of pastors, scientists. I mean, there was a, a whole slew of scientists who came out against the vaccine and, and stuff like that. People who, will prostitute themselves out, you know, integrity be damned, um, authenticity be damned, and, uh, and just kind of go along with whatever political power, you know, that they're already aligned with. And that's a problem. I like yeah. the way that you put that, Zach, of a, of a descent into meaninglessness. And I think that that is like what we are engaged in uh, when we are chumming it up and telling the powers what they want to hear. Well, and actually maybe just saying nothing, you know, it's like you said, maybe I don't know about the recording between Nixon and Billy Graham, but I can imagine, uh, and you know, this happens all sorts of times. Like this happens in evangelical churches. This is a problem we have just with that about, you know, how do we, dis how do we deal with power? And we have a trouble with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have a problem dealing with power. And one of the things we do is ironically, we end up, we have the King prophet mentality you know, mm -hmm. obviously there, you know, there's a lot of, I, I also get a lot of true prophets who come through my church, you know, claiming that, you know, uh, you know, I, I had a guy come and give me a 20 page document. He hand typed about why the picture downstairs of Jesus, I didn't even know it was there, uh, was violating, you know, it was this huge violation of the old Testament. And, you know, so he was trying to be a true prophet, you know, and I think everybody would have been like, dude, chill out Yeah. But at the same time he's trying to be the same guy you know he, he has that courage because that's the next thing in this section that he talks about is that you know that I, I think we're ready to move on to that right no i we still got something to say well, about kind of self-deception and hypocrisy but, on to that. what's that i'll hold on to that thought then okay right. yeah hold on to that so Niebuhr says you know philosophy uh science religion these are three you know rocks in the stream that do not move you know, these things, you can't prostitute these things off into political systems. Um, they're supposed to be those things that stand out. But then, and yet he says, quote, men are always trying to prove that what they are doing is in accord with God's will or with the ultimate truth or with the supreme good. There's always some motive there for self-deception, always a motive there for self-deception. We always want to use religion as magic, you know, to bending the cosmos to our own will type of thing. But let me just close out the section reading this, this really good uh, paragraph here, or half a paragraph. 
says the reason each nation is so certain that it possesses a higher degree of honesty than its neighbors is that what appears as hypocrisy from the outside is usually only self-deception from the inside. So we might be looking over at Trump, Trumpism, and be like, ah, see, they're so hypocritical. But really, there's some self-deception going on in there. And I hate to say it, but this is also going on on the left. Like, you can see the way that both sides love to point out hypocrisies of the other side. Mm -hmm. And they're really, in in, in a lot of ways, pointing out self-deceptions. So continuing on, he says, we fool our neighbors because we have first fooled ourselves. And there's always a religious quality in this self-deception. We want our will to prevail. And yet we know that it cannot prevail if it conflicts with the eternal order of the world. We know it's not going to prevail unless it's authentic, but we want to bend authenticity. Therefore, we seek in the same act and the same thought to conform our will to God's and to coerce God's will to our own. So we're, we're involved in both sides of this process constantly. This curious deception, Niebuhr says, may be detected by others, but not by ourselves. Yet the others who detect it erroneously imagine themselves our moral superiors. The king of Judah may therefore have been no more honest than the king of Israel. So basically showing how self-deception comes about this. And you know, like, that's the name of the game. Self-deception is you don't even know that you're doing it, you know, but you kind of rely on people outside of you to do it. And that's why I was kind of saying earlier before we started this episode, uh, before we were recording, it's important that we have two functional parties. You know, it's important that we have authentic people from both policy standpoints uh, to be able to counteract the other and to call out the other. You know, this, you, is, this is really important stuff, and we don't have that now. What do you think about this in terms of uh, theological discourse, though? You know what I mean? Like, hmm. um, one of my favorite book series that's, you know, it's not like the most easy to read, but the Counterpoints by, uh, or no, yeah, it's Counterpoints, I think, by Zondervan. And it's like, basically, they put four people together, and they all oh, have I've seen those, yeah. views about theology. But they're, they're great, because it's just like very in-depth, well-meaning people arguing about or, you know, giving the finer points of different positions. And I find those to be a lot more instructive and helpful, but I'm just thinking about this in terms of like how you lay out a church, you know, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, on what theological issues do you see this kind of dual position? You know what I mean? And, and, and at what point do you stop valuing the other person's position? You know, cause there is a place, you know, like I don't value anti-Semitism in my church, you know, like I'm, and I'm not going to value that position. You know what I mean? Or, you know, there's a lot of other positions that I would probably call. They're not within the. I'd stop listening. Basically, Yeah, they're not within the the realm of even dialogue. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. So the next section, this is the last section. It's just on. It's basically I've named it how to spot a true prophet, how, how to spot a true prophet. And this is kind of hinting toward the next section, because I believe that the next section is called it's called the test of true prophecy. That's the next chapter. Uh, but he kind of hints toward it a little bit here. And this is what he, he basically makes the point that we know. I thought this was a really interesting point. He makes the point that we know very little about Micaiah. We have no idea where he came from, where he's going outside of the prison, you know. 
But somehow, just by reading this small sliver of his life, we, the reader, know he's a true prophet. Yeah. We don't need scripture to tell us, hey, this guy right here, look at this guy. He's a, he's a prophet. This guy is right. And the other ones are wrong. We just know intuitively, just by reading the story, this guy's clearly the right one. So we know just by reading one page out of this man's life that he's a true prophet. And yet it can be so difficult for some people to do the same thing in life. It can be very difficult to tell who's telling us the truth and who's not. So Niebuhr wants to point out two things that stand out clearly, that kind of tip off the reader, that make Micaiah most definitely seem like a true prophet. Um, and I think that these two things we can apply to our own life and look for these things and people. So the first one, the first point that he makes is uh, the, the true prophet has apprehension. Um, and let me read this part. Uh, so one, Niebuhr says, one is that there was, even in this early tribal religion, an occasional apprehension of the profound religious truth that God is not simply the sum total of the highest social values, and that therefore the word of God must frequently be spoken against the community and king. So we go into this knowing that there's a higher power than just whatever the 400 prophets are saying. We intuitively know that, that this can't be it. You know, it's not just kind of what everybody is saying happens to be true. It was, continuing with Niebuhr, it was this insight which the later 8th century prophets elaborated so that their religion ceased to be the religion of a tribe and became the revelation of the will of a transcendent God spoken to and against all nations. Hmm. So he's saying that whatever this is that we're picking up on here with Micaiah is going to be kind of what energizes the later prophets, you know, um, uh, during the Babylonian captivity and on, uh, is that there's this apprehension about the totalizing, like the total truth coming from just a bunch of powerful people. You know, there has to be some apprehension about that. I think that, I mean, that's the, the epitome of, uh, of Niebuhr's, a lot of what Niebuhr talks about just generally is that this idea, right? You can see that this is not only a value that he sees as a quintessential to the role of a prophet in society, but one that he's actually practiced in his life. You know, like apprehensions, like a, uh, I would say like a cornerstone of his, epistemology of his everything he does you know what i mean that's right, kind right. of a, a defining factor of him um and so to to apply this i guess we can say to everybody across the board wherever you see everybody agreeing that should make you a little apprehensive mm. that should make that should set off some alarms in your mind and in order to spot kind of the prophet, you're probably going to see somebody who is apprehensive about that and who's going to be kind of raising their hand and being like, ah, but don't you think, you know? So maybe there should be kind of this ingrained distrust. And I think that there is in all prophetic religion and within Christianity in particular, that you see a status quo, you need to be suspicious of it. In, in one sense, I, I understand what you were saying, and I understand the experience of it, you know, because you, when you see a true prophet, it's like, oh, like that person is definitely like, they make me feel guilty about my pretensions and how I've, you know, miss seeing the situation. They, they provide clarity, right? In a time of confusion. Um, but I also know that like a lot of people see themselves that way. And so, like I said earlier, like, it's really hard because like, 
I'm really, I'm apprehensive, ironically. But you uh, can see them. Yeah, you are apprehensive. So, so you still have kind of a, an intuition about this, about people who say this about themselves, because you still see them kind of go and congregate around a bunch of yes people, you know? You know, there's also the, you know, the people who are, you know, the, they're so isolated. They've isolated themselves. The reason they've isolated themselves is because they believe they're the true prophet. And they live in the woods and they raise goats and they like, they don't talk or see anybody. I mean, I, I'm thinking of something specific, you know, for my own life, like, you know, they're, they're pure, they need to purify themselves. And so they, they live in the woods to keep away from the sinfulness of humanity so that they can maintain the true word of God. And, and it's almost like, I guess one of the characteristics that maybe is attached to this is it's like a engaged apprehension. It's not well, a dis- maybe just go moving on to the second part. So the, so the second thing that stands out to Niebuhr is courage. Okay, so not just the apprehension, not just the fear of the masses and the the herd, the cows, the cattle in society that just kind of go along with everything, but also the courage to do something about it. Right. And so that isn't that guy who just goes out and raises goats. You know, (laughs) that is a person who lacks courage. Yeah. Uh, But somebody who's able to stand up and, and I'll just read what he says about this. The second interesting fact about Micaiah is it required courage to speak the word of the Lord against the king. Courage is still one of the tests of true prophecy. Not all prophets are put in prison, but there are times when all of them are threatened with punishment. The world is composed of communities so large as to imagine themselves the ultimate community, but not large enough to deserve being regarded as custodians of ultimate values. The pride and pretensions of these communities is a constant hazard to true prophecy. Sometimes the king is merely a symbol. And this is what Aaron was talking about earlier. Sometimes the king is merely a symbol of such a community and articulates its pride. Sometimes the king has his own pride, which he seeks to glorify at the expense of the community. In either case, there is a constant pressure upon the church and the preachers of the word to conform their message to the needs, the prejudices, and the desires of the community and its leaders. Against such pressure, the prophet can set no force but his own courage. Yeah, so you know, yeah. maybe, you know, that's a really, you know, I, I love that because I was actually going to, I wanted to read that before. Like, it's one of those things I, I put my quotes that I really wanted to get to. And part of the reason I want to get it to is because I think in those moments, right, and I think we've had a lot of those moments the last two years, not just in a political standard, but how people talk about other people. You know what I mean? Like, especially like, you know, one that I think of is like racism or, um, you know, because there can be a lot of subtle racism and you almost just like tolerate people. Um, you know, you just you might like somebody says something and you're just like, oh, I'm just gonna let that go for right now. It's like subtly racist. You're just like, that. that's not really OK, but I, I don't have time to deal with that right now. As white people, we kind of are privileged enough to choose yeah. our battles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying, though, is one of the one of the weird things that happens with that is that in those moments, the reason you sometimes don't say something, sometimes it's just inconvenient time-wise. So you're just like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'll come back to it. Um, and, or is that my role? You know what I mean? Um, obviously as a pastor, you definitely feel like that's your role a lot more often than most. Yeah. Um, but the part, the thing that really s- stands out to me about this, and, and that, that I think it's clarifying for like how I engage with the, these groups of people that are, that maybe they're making these comments that you're like, okay, that's like not right. Like should be talking like that? is that you want to have some substance. I mean, we were talking about it earlier about like, when somebody comes out and they're like, you know, the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago is, that's total, you know, that's a farce, that's a lie or something like that. There could be a real temptation to just like back away from that because you want to have some like substance. And maybe you didn't, you don't know the whole thing. So you don't, you haven't read the, 
you know, the, the, what's it called? The raid, um, the warrant, the warrant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The warrant. You haven't read the warrants. So you don't know the facts, but you're pretty sure, you know, where this is going. But, and so instead of using your courage in that situation and standing up against them, you're saying, well, I don't have all the facts. So I'm going to like kind of back away until I have all the facts, but you never actually get all the facts. You know what I mean? You'll never, you have to make a decision at some point. Right. And you'll have to kind of lean on your own courage. And right, I think right. there's a real temptation in those moments where I want to be like, okay, I have all this substance, all this intellectual information for you. But really what I, what I need is just courage. Like I need to step into those moments without all the substance. Um, and just dialogue, you know, just like yeah. ask them, oh, why do you believe that? How, why did you come to that conclusion? And I'm not trying to say like, I don't say something, you know, often, but at the same time, you know, there, there can be a, a temptation for something other than courage, a temptation for like, I, I need like, almost like there's like a longing, like, God, would you just like, give me some, so, so I can be really rhetorically gifted. But it's like, you know, courage doesn't always look like rhetorically gifted. Sometimes courage is just like, hey, like, don't talk like that. Like, that's not okay. You know, I'm just talking about a small scale, like itty bitty scale. But I think the same thing happens with leaders, right? It's, we don't want to, we don't want to tell them, you know, there's so many pastors that go on saying absolute nonsense and horrible, horrible things from the pulpit. And everybody in their congregation knows, but it's like, they feel they don't have the courage. You know what I mean? They don't, because they don't have the substance. They can't outwit him rhetorically. Let me read this part where Niebuhr's talking about the American church. So he says, in reference to courage and and even apprehension, he says, but meanwhile, the American state is developing and increasing its powers. So this, when he's writing this, the U.S. is really starting to ramp up, you know, um, it's during FDR. And the church must gradually recognize that it is something more than the community at prayer. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the revelation of the living God, the creator, the judge, and redeemer of all nations. Such a fellowship can never be completely at home in any nation or, a perfect, or, or perfectly conform to national purposes and ambitions. So the church needs to be an extension of that kind of religion, that cultural force that he was talking about earlier, of this kind of unmoved rock, you know, this, this thing that you can't prostitute to the powers we have to be courageous but i guess yeah i guess it'd be really critical to that that word apprehension needs to also be in there you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely apprehension and courage they're immovable rocks but they're just that they're rocks you know right yeah that's the extent grown rocks with incredible momentum yes yeah uh in this next section he kind of just he kind of he kind of uh pits courage up against idolatry and this is where it really gets interesting and where he very clearly i think speaks against uh christian nationalism it's a great section uh so he's just talking about how we need to be uncomfortable here you know we we need to be apprehensive in this country and we need to be courageous in this country and then he says this on the other side he says the national idolatry has become a particularly virulent form of sin in the contemporary period. There is no place in the world today in which the church must not contend against it. In some nations, the issue is definitely joined. In them, the word of God is actually spoken with greater clarity than where the issue is not joined. In America, for instance, there are still many prophets of God who imagine that Christianity and the religion of the American dream are one and the same. These prophets imagine that democracy is the social and political expression of Christianity, 
and that a nation which has abolished kings has also overcome the pride of nations. They do not know what a proud, vexatious, and cruel king demos may become on occasion. So this is a really interesting switch here where he's saying, okay, we don't have Ahabs to deal with. We have demos. And by demo, he calls it king demos. So like the people of the, of the Republic, the people of the citizenry of the United States, uh -huh. the demos becomes king now. And he makes an interesting switch here. And I want to see what you guys think about this. So he says to speak the word of God against king demos, the people, Therefore, requires not only courage, but penetration. Illusions must be dispelled, yet courage remains a primary test of, prof uh, of prophecy. So he's saying not only in an American society where the demos have become Ahab, and by demos, he just means the people, right? Where king people become the, becomes the king. We must not only have courage, but we must penetrate culture. We must dispel illusions. So we're not just only in the business and in, in American culture of simply opposing a proud king, but we have to root out the illusions. Yeah, I can't say it much better than that, man. I think that's that, you know, that I love his his use of that, the King Demos. Because I think people often think that we've I mean it's just such an indictment, such a clarifying statement. That we so often, and I think honestly it's one of the main problems with like American exceptionalism is what underlies that. Like anytime I hear American exceptionalism kind of spouting itself from someone, I I think that it's a problem and it, but it's not quite as easy to identify exactly what the problem is but i think he identifies it really well here um just well and he's going to this is kind of a uh primer to what will come later in irony of american history right of kind of dispelling those illusions that were propelling quixote toward the windmills you know yeah and i love that you corrected my greek there zach thank you it is Dem demos right isn't it demos it's an Demos. probably May I ask an exegetical question here? No. Uh, ask that. In, <laughs> no, interpreting Niebuhr here. Oh, okay. Because it seems like when he talks about the king, the demos, it's, we can, I think, probably very broadly interpret that as you kind of mentioned earlier, people, but he does provide a much more direct interpretation of that just below where he says the king of modern communities are most frequently financial and industrial oligarchs who make war against Ramoth Gilead in a series of social conflicts. And Ramoth Gilead is more, more unions, unions and whatnot. So um, this is his socialist side coming out. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in, in terms of like, I think in making the interpretation here a, a bit more succulent, I guess part of our true prophecy has to be able to construct the, the, the reality of the situations and you cannot provide, you can't penetrate something. You don't know what you're penetrating. Right. right? Yeah. So you, so part of neighbors probably this, you know, how we can dispel this illusion is for instance, back since Obama was elected, there were, all these rampant stories on Fox News about how the Democrats are playing class warfare by just talking about class. But it seems Niebuhr here is like, you have to be aware that class is an issue. 
mm-hmm. but we can also rejoin here but you have to be aware that race is an issue right but you get like Cornel West coming up and saying that race and empire and class they're all integrated into one sort of functioning aberration it almost right? seems like the demos are many kings and yeah. there are, there are many kings in this land that the demos represent some being economic some being racial and yeah. some and at some points many of them converge well i think you know the one one of the good things about this particular story that Nebra's using in the first kings that there are two kings of judah sure. and israel working together um to take something that they they want you know yeah um so this is a really weird coincidence, but today is very apropos for this 400 to one profit talk, because today is the day Liz Cheney is trying to keep her seat as she's getting primary today. Now, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can say that by the time this airs, Liz Cheney is probably going to be on her way out. She will probably be a sitting duck congresswoman. It's looking pretty grim, but... I want to ask you guys, we're talking about this a little bit uh, before we're recording today, and we do have some different uh, viewpoints on this, but I am going to broach the possibility that Liz Cheney is a type of a Micaiah for the Republican Party today. Thoughts? I mean, I think she's just practicing this idea, like this idea of courage and apprehension. Like she's demonstrated both of those things. I don't think that makes somebody necessarily a prophet speaking on behalf of God, but in terms of if you wanted to find like, what is the just situation, right? If we just look at like her decision to oppose Trump's, I mean, to, to, sorry, to, to uh, go ahead with Trump's uh, thing. Where his, yeah. His, uh, his insurrection, his coup, no, no. his big lie, his big lie. No, but no, she, she went against, uh, she voted for his impeachment. There we go. Jeez. Oh yeah. She, yeah. She voted for his impeachment. I don't know why I have such trouble with that word. Um, and you know that that's a, that was an act, and that was it demonstrated that she possessed a true apprehension, and it demonstrated that she possessed a true courage because she full well knew that you know anybody that went against that knew that they could get primaried. Yeah. Um, and even not even that, but like, you know, I think of like another you know if we want to go conservatives, like I think I remember John McCain, one of my favorite political moments in the last. Yes. Uh, you know, John McCain doing the thumbs down, right, right for uh, for the health care bill. That was right. his last bill he voted on. Yeah, something that he disagreed with, ultimately. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think he has some conservative reasons for believing that. But at the same time, he understood that it was not a greater good. And it, and it obviously took some apprehension and some courage. And it's probably a lot easier when you're about to die to be courageous. But um, I don't know. I, I just think like that's a good example of what that looks like in practical terms on a political stage. But I think if we wanted to go to like a, you know, you, you could take, you would hope that like your congregants would possess that same courage. You know, that's what things you'd want to instill in them, that same apprehension and that same courage so that when those mm-hmm. moments come, despite ideology, they would um, yeah, make those difficult decisions. You know, a part of us wants to like pump the brakes when I kind of make the, you, you did, that, that was a beautiful job of laying that out, by the way, Zach. But you did kind of pump the brakes on kind of the profit talk a little bit. And I totally get that. But in a way, and this might be a reach, in a way, what we are witnessing is theological in a lot of ways. I am not about to say that she's a prophet of God. Okay. But she is, I would say, justice. And, well, you know, there are many gods up there on Capitol Hill. 
You know, mm-hmm. there, there are many uh, things that people feel beholden to and feel like uh, uh, they, they need to serve. And there's, there's a certain level of Id- Id- uh, idolatry going on. And she is somebody who is kind of standing above that to a degree. It took her a long time. Like, you know, she went along with it just like everybody else did for a long time. But she did at the right moment uh, stand up and and she found her line. It's not like a Mike Pence moment where, you know, he did the right thing for one millisecond, you know, or however, however long it took him to uh, to OK the votes, to certify the votes. It's a disregard he, of strategy. Yeah. You know? he, yeah, he went back on, you know, and now he's back in Trump camp, it seems, or he's trying to play both lines or something. He's trying to keep the One of the, I think the true signs of a prophet, if you bring together apprehension and courage, is that they disregard strategy for this higher ideal. Like uh, often strategies, they, I mean, that's the huge thing that draws, you know, people wonder why Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham are back with Trump. I mean, maybe it's because they're immoral people or they're just strategic. You know what I mean? They're just saying, look, my odds... My odds without without Trump are minimal, right? But a true prophet disregards. They just say, you know, screw the screw the what I get from this. Yeah, yeah, like uh, oh, I need to tell the truth. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna lose my political career. That's that's right. That's fine. You know what I mean? Like whereas Micaiah is willing to go to prison for what he's doing. Liz Cheney is willing to lose her seat. Liz Cheney, seriously, she could have had a lifetime locked up. Uh, in politics, she could have been congress congressman congresswoman from Wyoming, the same seat, until she croaks. Like that's how popular she was, and that's how much of a platform she had in Wyoming, and she gave it up, you know, uh, for the truth. Now the question comes in, and I want to bring in I want to bring in Aaron. Okay, the question comes in. Is this just a new ploy to get something else? So earlier, when we were talking about kind of Thomas More and uh, and King Henry VIII, um, Niebuhr makes a point elsewhere. You can find this video on YouTube. It's one of the few videos, like interviews, you can find of Niebuhr on the interwebs. But Niebuhr says, you know, Thomas More still had the backing of the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't like he was all on a ledge. Like it wasn't like he was all isolated. He ended up getting killed, you know, but he had affirmation from a much larger body than just the Church of England, you know, so he could kind of put on his, you know, Catholic clergy robe and and, you know, immerse himself in that to gain validation for what he's saying. So it wasn't truly like a prophetic moment or something like that in that way. Uh, But what is what does Liz Cheney have? Liz Cheney doesn't have another tribe. You know that she's that she's going toward. I don't know, Aaron. You were thinking that maybe she's a Jehoshaphat. Explain that. Well, number one, Jehoshaphat. I think for Niebuhr represents this un unaware. I I think we I think he calls it hypocrisy, or in in this chapter, um, of the objectivity. Right, as we kind of mentioned before. You know, people use science as politics and philosophy as this space and medium of objectivity where you just put in the calculation, you get the truth, and you defend it, whatever. That's just not how it functions. And the way Jehoshaphat is trying to get some alternative voice from King Ahab's court is this sort of 
slippery attempt at objectivity. So that's the first point. So it's kind of diplomatic, kind of. It's diplomatic. Trying to get results. Yeah, trying to get some results. I don't, I'm not trying to question her motivations here. I mean, Niebuhr's a bit more direct in questioning Jehoshaphat's motivations, basically saying that, you know, he's probably only asking us because it's not his court for profits, whatever. I'm not trying to question her motivations here. But what I'm suggesting potentially is exactly what Niebuhr says as well, is that these prophets imagine that democracy is the social and political expression of Christianity. Whilst I am sympathetic to our democratic practices, the way in which we talk about democracy, um, especially after January 6th rise, is almost like enshrining it in a religious sentiment. Mm. Like it was violated, and we should protect it. But do we think, I mean, we could pose the question to you here. When the January 6th insurrection happened, and you have all these people, even Mitch McConnell getting up and saying that these people have violated something sacred to us, these things. Are we not also in that manner slipping in to this manner of... Idolatrizing democracy in a sense. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, they, they have violated it, but do we not, in a way? Maybe this is the- for a whole another podcast because I see what you're saying here. This kind of gets into children of light, children of darkness. Democracy needs to be protected, and it mm-hmm. even must be uh, kind of set apart to a degree as mm-hmm. the best that we can do. But it shouldn't be made sacred and glorified, right? But just knowing how close those things are, you have to expect that there's going to be some overlap in people's Mm -hmm. minds and the way that people talk about it. And if something bad happens to it, then it would almost feel like, you know, uh, your idol has been crushed or something like that well i mean i I think the difference in this as well though is that for those who even unconsciously take democracy to be the political expression that's he says of christianity but we can just probably put our heart our highest social values right that you know this is where i guess the pretension the irony comes into effect even on both sides for neighbor might say is that you know even for liz cheney her defense of democracy from trump is just an expression of our highest social values interesting so i mean we could say then jan 6 is kind of like a new 9-11 where it has yeah. reformatted and restructured kind of new parties and new ideologies around it and there's a way that you can still build a tower on both sides type of thing yeah and we can take Liz Cheney as being kind of a prophet of the new Babel, uh, kind of like, um, oh, you know, look how much integrity she has. Uh, and we can kind of glorify her a little bit on the left. Uh, but, but really what we're doing is kind of reinstilling the tower, like kind of, kind of uh, I don't know, uh, we're kind of reformatting our whole friend versus foe list around yep. this one event um, when, but you're saying in actuality, 
she's still not a prophet. Um, if we're talking about reason, if we're talking about Christianity, if we're talking about um, true religion, as Niebuhr would call it, then she's still not necessarily a prophet. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I, I think, I guess that's exactly what I'm saying. And I would also just take, I don't know if, I mean, let's just take, for instance, here as well, the characters in the story in Kate vs. Kings. Number one, Micaiah is not a politician. He's not a king. He's not a senator. But he's also not a part of, from what I guess from what we understand in the story, of the king's court. He is something completely outside of it. They have to go and get him. Yeah. They have to go get him. When you look at the other article that Niebuhr writes comparing MLK to uh, Billy Graham, what's the difference? MLK, even though he is speaking truth to power and in conversation with LBJ and, you know, uh, other. And they're getting down the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. Yeah, of course. They're getting that done because they're working together. But then you have Billy Graham, who is not just invested for the sake of some mm-hmm. social movement. He's invested for something else. You know? Right. And you still have MLK. I mean, I think just a couple of years after that, speaking out against the Vietnam War, basically going yeah. up against LBJ. You know? Yeah. But again, so who's the prophet? that Niebuhr recognizes in that, in that distinction. It's MLK. Right, yeah. But it's not... Um, MLK can work with them, yeah. but he's not going to sacrifice his own authenticity, his own truth. No, uh, I, I think we're to work with them. What you're getting at is just like, there needs to be a distinction. Like, and you know, there has to be a distinction in terms of like interests. Like, you know, Micaiah doesn't have, it doesn't serve his interest to serve the king. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a helpful... I mean, it serves his interest in that he won't go to jail, but... Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element in that that there's you have to be disengaged, disconnected, somehow separated in a, in a real meaningful way, not just in mm-hmm. a like, hey, like we don't we don't talk, we don't get seen in public together, but in like a, you know, I have a purpose in society and you have a purpose in society, and they're somewhat different. All right, so that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Push all the buttons, like, subscribe, leave us a good rating. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor. And if you're following us already, don't be a stranger. Swing on by and add us. Uh, we're pretty good about getting back to people. All right, so until next time, take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. <laughs>